Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Do Sasquatch and other cryptids live almost within sight of large cities like Boston? Do phenomena like black helicopters, ordinarily associated with UFOs, turn up when the big guy is around? Has the Bridgewater Triangle grown to include Cape Cod and part of Rhode Island? Hello, and welcome to the 960th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, and on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those mostly local questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And if you'd like to communicate with us today, the number is 401-766-1240, that is from anywhere, or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. John Horrigan is an Emmy Award-winning television host, sports announcer, folklorist, historical researcher, and reenactor, and uh, a widely traveled investigator of the unexplained. John has produced and hosted countless cable television and radio programs dedicated to unexplained mysteries over the years. His paranormal investigations have taken him to British Columbia, Washington State, Oregon, and Ohio, pursuing the elusive Sasquatch. He produced the popular DVD, Mysterious Bridgewater Triangle, a long-recognized flap area at the eastern edge of our AMFM listening area. John lives in eastern Massachusetts, which makes him pretty local compared with a lot of our other guests. And uh, So, John Horgan, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. Great to have you with us. And it's it's always fun having someone in studio. because it it's, it's a rare treat. Well, uh, it's been increasingly less rare, but that's, that, that, hey, I'll take it. It's a, it's a <laughs> lot of fun. It's it's more fun to speak feast, uh, face, feast to feast or face to face, in my opinion. Um, so let's, let's just hop right into it, I guess. So where is the Bridgewater Triangle and what is it all about? Okay. Well, the, the uh, term first comes from uh, Lauren Coleman's seminal book, Mysterious America. Mm. Essentially, it's a 200-square-mile triangle with its apex in Abington, Massachusetts, mm. its southeastern corner in the Freetown State Forest, which I don't like. We can chat about that. And then the yep. southwestern corner is on the Rehoboth, uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island state line. Mm-hmm. And within that area is what they call the Beating Heart, the Hockamock Swamp, 6,000 acres of thick briar, uh, quick mud, I call it. I don't call it quicksand. Um, various insects and creatures, and it's, it's almost impenetrable. And I don't recommend people to go in there alone or without GPS uh, it, it can be dangerous in terms of the wildlife there and the diseases that emerge from the insects there. Yeah, it makes ticks. sense. Ticks. Well, we, we have a big tick problem here in New England, so it's, a <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. And we were actually just in Rehoboth yesterday, ironically. But we're we're pretty familiar with, with the Freetown State Forest. We've been there a couple of times, uh, my dad more so than I, and we've had some very, very interesting experiences there. So w- what are some of the highlights of, of, of those experiences there? Well, th- there's different anomalous creatures, as Dad pointed out, black helicopters, which are normally associated with UFO sightings, mm-hmm. UFOs, balls of light, for instance, uh, near the Taunton random dog track along the railroads, mm-hmm. um, ghosts, and then, of course, you have man-beast anthropoids, a.k.a. Bigfoot, Thunderbirds, uh, enormous birds seen there, Phantom pumas or cougars seen there, giant black dogs, large snakes, and of course, of course, it's a uh, people say it's a cursed area because uh, that was the site of Native American graveyards, 
and some conflicts within King Philip's War, which took place between 1675 and 1676. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a smorgasbord of, of paranormal phenomena has occurred there, or allegedly occurred there, over the last um, hundreds of years. Well, the triangle uh, thing is something we interpret as a research tool. You know, it's not that things are limited necessarily to that, but you have to have to start somewhere. So with the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, this will be of extreme interest to our local audience here in uh, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and beyond. I've heard that maybe unofficially at least, that the triangle has increased in size and it has now moved eastward to include much of Cape Cod and moved westward to just about here in uh, northeast of Rhode Island. Is that true? The Bridgewater Trapezoid is what's true. Bridgewater, yeah. <laughs> but is Dover Demon, which took place in 1977, where right. uh, some school kids on April vacation allegedly saw some spindly beige-colored alien-type entity clinging to a tree, clinging to a rock wall. That sits out your, uh, tr- uh, outside the triangle. But it's okay, I mean, to, to say that there, there are paranormal areas and we can come up with some sort of shape to define it. Yeah, mm. the uh, sort of uh, Bridgewater dodecahedron. Okay. There we go. The, yeah. <laughs> the Bridgewater so, uh, rhombus, if you well, will. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as John Keel said, the, the uh, journalist, the, the, uh, the entire planet is haunted. Mm, but again, so. you know, we have, for example, our, our Connecticut Triangle, Litchfield Triangle, is now about 330 square miles. Uh, the Pennsylvania Triangle, which we've only been working on for, well, since 2016, has expanded out to about 100 square miles now. And we, we have a new um, page in, in the book, so to speak, uh, that is pushing us up north with that one. But again, you know, how do you know where a triangle ends or where it begins and what's associated with what? But everything pretty much is haunted, as John Keel said, whatever that may mean. So um, have you had personal experiences in the triangle? I know we had a personal experience of meeting each other while we were doing a production with our good friend Alexander Petikoff, but uh, Oh, right. We appeared in the documentary, yes, Beyond the Trail. Well, you were in a tie out in the middle of nowhere, so I think that had, that had to be the giveaway. I figured you had to be John Horgan. Well, for, well, first of all, I, I, I don't like the Freetown State Forest. I, that was the second town there. It's creepy. I just yes. felt you should mm. not be here. Um, there's a long road, which Alex, uh, he, who I consider the preeminent Bigfoot researcher right now on the planet. I do, too. Let alone filmmaker. He's an extraordinary filmmaker. He is. So oh, yeah. gifted, so yep. talented. It's all about second place after Alexander when you talk about it. But mm-hmm. he did a piece on Copacut Road in that documentary and one of the legends in the Bridgewater Triangle is the Phantom Trucker of Copacut Road. And oh, I think, yes. I, I think yep. I figured that out. Um, that uh, Allegedly, if you're driving on that road and you don't break your suspension because there's some potholes <laughs> or whatever, um, a truck will pull up beside, uh, behind you and honk its horn, flash its lights, etc. And uh, I figured out what that was. That's an Amazon truck late on this delivery. So. <laughs> well, it could have been me. I would drive the same kind of truck. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, people ask me, what does a writer need a, a pickup truck for? I said, well, when you're bombing around in places like Pennsylvania Fields and the Bridgewater Triangle, you have that four-wheel drive. Never mind the winters around here in the hills. Mm. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> so, uh, but, uh, yeah, it comes in handy there. But um, there were... Puckwudgies also reported. Can you talk about them? Because we had an interesting experience with Okay. Um, Puckwudgies came to the public's attention in the early part of the century via author 
Christopher Balsano, who's one of the, the preeminent researchers, along with Chris Pittman of yeah, the Bridgewater the Triangle. Yeah. Yeah. And I call him the godfather, Chris Pittman of, of uh, the Bridgewater Triangle, of the Hockenlock Swamp. But uh, essentially, there are different descriptions. There's mini Native Americans with an angry attitude, and they show up, and they're almost dwarf-like. And um, I guess in that film that I narrated for Aaron Kadju in 2013, there was a guy by the name of Bill who had allegedly seen one in the half-light of a streetlight. And they're seen, I guess, near, what, a sonnet ledge? But but I'll be honest with you, I don't go there, and I... I've, I've, it's not part of my research. It doesn't interest me. Yeah. Um, nor does ghosts. Ghost research does not interest me as well. Um, so it, they're odd creatures, and somehow I associate if they're being if they're being seen with uh, Native American curses again uh, from 350 years ago. Mm. Hmm. So technically, it, that that whole area, well, at least at least Freetown, from what I understand, that now I might be wrong, is a, is a reservation, correct? So and nobody lives there. Is it <laughs> right? Right, right. So if you want to be undisturbed, if you're a paranormal entity, that's the place to hide, right? Right. And you've got thousands of years of inhabitation by Native Americans, mm. something beyond our comprehension as Europe, descendants of European settlers, right. correct? We're appropriators is what we did. We took this land uh, and we brought our diseases and our animals and our plants mm. and uh, wiped out uh, entire populations. And uh, I just I think that there's we have to respect the Native American tradition here. Mm. I want to say I don't I believe in curses and some people are cursed for the dark cloud over their head and that you can if you work with a Ouija board too you can bring curses upon you. So mm. it, tell me about your Pukwudgie story. I'm interested in, in hearing that. Oh, okay. Well, it was 2010, and we were um, at our uh, four wheel drive up out there, and we were. You know, exploring some roads we hadn't been on before in the Freetown State Forest. And we got to uh, a little spot at the head of the Copacut Reservoir. All right. And uh, we, it was a beautiful little spot. Uh, with, with, there's a story about that, too. But we got out, we were in the, you can see the, the, the lake is all the way down. You know, it's beautiful. So we felt as though we were being watched. And we just took a few random shots in the, you know, around. And when we looked at them, and I, I, I have a caveat here, you know, we don't claim there's anything in, in any photos. People can judge for themselves. But I did do intelligence photography in the military. And I have a naughty acquaintance with what you're going to see and what you're not going to see. Now, in the woods, particularly on a sunny day in the summer, you're going to have the, the interplay of light and all this. You're not going to have flesh tones unless it's some kind of fungus, which this was not. And uh, there seemed to be a, um, a full figure in a fur coat with a very plain face. And there seemed to be another face with a monk-like cowl over it, very small. And uh, if people want to see these, they can go to newenglandghosts.com, and, uh, a site that is in dire need of, of redesign and reconstruction. But nevertheless, there is a, a, a case page, and hit Bridgewater Triangle, click that, and you can see these pictures. Uh, they were on the Internet, too. So uh, what that was, I don't know. Now, wouldn't you know that five years later, a man came to me and said he had been on that road, um, maybe what, 100, 200 feet from where we were? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, there's yeah, yeah. a little marsh. 
and he said he was with his dog, whose name was Bingo, and he, um, a little figure was standing by the side of the road, beckoning him to come in to the woods. And the guy figured he'd gone bye-bye, but the dog saw it too, and was very, so, so the guy, he figured retreat was a better part of valor, off he went, never went back there again. So those were our Pukwudgie stories firsthand, so to speak. Mm. Mm. That's a similar story to the one that was in Aaron Cadgey's documentary. Again, the guy's name, I should know it, Bill, who with his dog encountered something just, as I mentioned, just on the termination of a streetlight to the shadow, and the thing was beckoning him, saying, uh, something to the, come, 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 we want you, come here, something like that. And he said, I'm not yeah. going with you. Well, I talked about that in, in the production you and I were both in. Yeah. And uh, it sounded like... Was trying to speak English, correct. But in my opinion, uh, did, you know, not having been there, uh, I would suggest that maybe was was a young uh, juvenile Bigfoot, hmm. not a puckwudgeon. Could could be, um, I, and again, it's perception. Yeah, I yeah. believe people are receptors. I believe you're a receptor, but you're, because of your interest in it, you weren't just did, didn't get into this randomly. You were called. Right? Yeah, yeah. They, they they come to you. You don't go to them. And I think there are mm. people that are receptors. Yeah. Um, when I was in Gulf Breeze, Florida, in 1997, investigating the Ed Walters photographs, people were seeing UFOs, and I was standing near them, and I couldn't see them because yeah. of the angle of light or what have you. And I was told you're not at the right vibrational rate, or something like well, that. Well, there would be something to that. I mean, I think people. But they're so unkind. <laughs> it is. <laughs> So well, you know, you put uh, political correctness onto the paranormal. Uh, Heaven help us. It's a very esoteric way of saying you don't got what you when you need. To. <laughs> you ain't one of us. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you an example of my own Bigfoot experience in Pennsylvania, uh, 2016, September 16th. I told you about it before the, uh, the we went on the air today, and people have heard about it. But uh, I see it right there. To me, it was a sacred experience. Because I always will go into any kind of wilderness area with with respect and with with a sense of love and very positive, unarmed, unarmed, yep, and except with cameras, and then uh, all of a sudden, a short time later, uh, we weren't around, but it was broad daylight. Little girl coming down the road beneath the hill where this occurred ran into a creature very similar description, broad daylight absolutely terrified she would come to our neighborhood meetings in that area when we would be down there investigating and cry now I hope at some point when she gets older she'll tell us about this but her parents would bring her so she would feel more reassured that other people were saying this sort of thing so uh, we've yet to hear the full story of her experience except from her parents so um, I think you do bring a certain something with you Absolutely, yeah. and, and while we're riffing on Bigfoot, can I tell you my favorite story? Please, okay. please. So I was I, I Don Keating from Eastern Ohio, who's been investigating Bigfoot since 1979. Okay, All right. and he's just concluding his career now. A dear friend of mine, and I went out in the 90s with him into Eastern Ohio, and we traveled out to see John Green, one of the four horsemen of Bigfoot research. I was lucky enough to meet John Green, Renee DeHinian, Grover Krantz, and Peter Byrne. We're staying at John Green's house. And again, this is just the Internet's getting going. I'm thumbing through his index cards for Bigfoot stories. And in pops this burly, bald-headed guy, strong as an ox, a steel worker from Hamilton, Ontario. His name's Mike McDonald. Do we have time? Okay. So oh, yeah. He, oh, he had been out in Harrison Hot Springs, where John Green lives. He had been at Harrison uh, Lake and on this island reconnoitering 
Bigfoot or a family of Bigfoots. So he said he's down to half a sleeve of saltines. He's got to come back in from the bush. And he's up on this hill pitched, and he's been tracking Bigfoot, finding scat piles, you know, the, the, the alt sulfur smell uh, being watched. Final night, he's lying down, and literally he says he's shaking on the ground because whatever, the thunder steps are coming around. And it was a full moon, and something came around and eclipsed the moonlight, okay, on his tent. He reaches into his backpack. He's thinking, he's tracking Bigfoot. He thinks it's a grizzly. Gets his bear spray. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three. Unzips it, sprays it, maces himself. Had the nozzle the wrong way. <laughs> and then he said, he said, just a blur. He saw this creature ran away. He fell down with the sleeping bag at his ankles in his underwear. There's a, a, a sailboat docked there. Man comes out with a gun. There's a Bigfoot, there's a Bigfoot. Calm down, son, you can sleep in the dock. Here's whiskey. Have a couple, two, have two whiskeys. He's lying. I'll go get your sleeping bag. Bring us, you're sleeping here on the dock. He's sleeping on the dock. Can't get to sleep. His mind's racing. All of a sudden, he hears footfall on the coast, on the on the bank of the of the lake, and something enters the water. And now he loses it. He 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 pees himself. And he said he didn't believe in God. And he started praying there, and he could hear bubbles. And then something. Underneath the the, the, the the dock where he's lying, scratches under his head. And he, he just lost it. He's praying, please, please, please. Then the bubbles went away, and he heard this thing, and he could smell it, musty, get out of the water and walk away. So that's like, and he told me this at 2 in the morning in Don Keaton and Chuck Story and Mark DeWorth at, in John Green's living room. And that always stuck with me. Mike McDonald was the guy's name. And we took him to Vancouver where there was a Sasquatch Symposium. And, uh, that's quite symposium. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Love it. So, um, that's one. And then, of course, if we have time, we can now talk about the Bigfoot stories in Bridgewater Triangle. If you're oh yeah, we got, we got, we got plenty of time. Yeah. Okay. I guess, um, the story begins December of 1969. I went to Bridgewater State College, and it, back then it was, uh, a teacher's college, right? And apparently, some young ladies, some co-eds in the dorm saw this bipedal entity silhouetted in the background they thought it was a prowler a perv right mm. and no they said it's a, a gorilla so people were freaking out saying wow what is this and and uh, we can speculate as to why it was there at that time but suddenly people in bridgewater west bridgewater east bridgewater begin to find footprints um begin to find broken gates uh, a chicken pulled out of, of a hen house they had to have a, an opposable thumb right to unlatch that so it gets to be spring of 1970 now, and people are freaking out. Bridgewater police have had enough of this. They, they put out a patrol stakeout. So a woman had reported finding footprints. Officer sitting in his cruiser, and essentially something picks up the back of his cruiser, and he puts his foot on the brake, and the, his red lights uh, uh, highlight a furry torso, turns his spotlight on like Adam-12 and sees this, what he called a bipedal bear, Yogi, uh, running around the side <laughs> of the house, right? And it goes up until 1970 and 71, and for all intent and purpose, that flap, as, as you mentioned before, ends uh, over an 18-month period. And then it picks up again in the mid to late 90s, where people are reporting them. And I guess the big case is John Baker, and I got to kayak the Town River and the Hockamock River. They confuse that sometimes. Uh, he's laying trap lines at night in the winter. Uh, trying to catch muskrat. Mmm, yum. Uh, yeah, I mean, why not, huh? Yeah, and he hears the football Deputy because, you dog. know, frozen puddles, he hears, <laughs> has a sense of being watched, has sulfur smell, uh, sees, again, some sort of ape-like creature just watching him walking alongside. And that's basically where the story ends. So mm. I believe 
that where these things are seen, there's a tradition of them, not over 10 years, 20 years, but over hundreds of years, that just mm. like people settle in the same area, perhaps these, whatever they are, um, I don't know if they're flesh and blood I, I, at this point in time. I still don't know. Um, that they, they, they tend to exist in the same area. Hmm. That is a, that is an interesting point, and that kind of I've I've been I've been kind of making notes as as we've been talking, and there's there's all these archetypes in in all of these these sort of places, right? Bigfoot being one of them, you know, Bigfoot UFOs, you know, we can we can toss ghosts in there if you want to, you know, but there's always some sort of ar- archetypal thing, right? We're we're not most of it is like stuff we've experienced at some point in time, and a lot of it, um, except for maybe Bigfoot and a handful of other things, tends to you know. The way we interpret it tends to descend from, you know, European folklore in some way, shape, or form. Black dogs, great example, right? You know, you see, you hear stories of those over over in England, France, you know, all over Western Europe, right? And you know, even canine cryptids, which is kind of making a comeback, right? You know, there's there's a really fun sort of fact that you know the idea of of you know werewolves and vampires is very alive in Eastern Europe. That that tradition has never gone away. That is still very much a thing. And it's even technically a thing in the Middle East, Greece, all those places. It's never changed. In Western Europe, it kind of died out, but then it got brought over here, and then it kind of died out, sort of. But now it's kind of making a comeback, which is which is very interesting. But, but again, back to the archetypal sort of things. Now, you made a really interesting point that because Americans appropriated the land, right, you know, we appropriated all of these things, do we appropriate the experiences and the phenomena Never considered that. I would say yes. As human beings, we tend to we learn from others, just like any primate would, right? Mm-hmm. We, 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 for instance, I've learned. And let me just diverse that polar bears have learned how to. Um, bears have learned how to open up cars now. Oh yeah, they've identified <laughs> coolers as a food source. Yep. And now I know that polar bears, when I was in Labrador, they're migrating according to landfills now. Mm. Okay, so it's acquired behavior uh, passed down through time. So who's to say that we didn't take traditions and make them our own? So yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because uh, Alexander Petikov and I had a conversation um, because my my brother and I used to really love watching Bigfoot hunters. Or uh, Finding Bigfoot, that's what it was. Because we were like, oh, wow, you know, the way they cut the show, they just make them look like idiots. And <laughs> it's like, it's kind of funny and it's sad. But then, you know, I was talking to Alexander about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was talking about the episode where they were like, oh, well, you know, Bigfoot use, you know, power lines as, like, highways. And then they don't, uh, like, elaborate on it. And so you, they give you this insane statement. And then, you know, the way it's presented to you, it just sounds crazy. But Alexander was like, no, that's not crazy at all. And he explained this very well thought out, like, theory he was like, well, you know, deer use them, you know, essentially as highways because it's long, you know, tracks of land that are cleared and they can see for miles. And they don't have to worry about predators. They can just follow along. And he's like, you know, and most theories point to, you know, Bigfoot following deer trails. And, uh, and I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. He was like, but the way it's, it's shown, it just sounds insane. So, I mean, I, I get it. It's like, you know, we, we um, the world around us, as much as we adapt to it, it adapts to us in a way, right? You know, it's why you see more and more deer showing up on 295, you know. It's like, right. it, they, they, they tend to adapt to us. So I, I, I would suggest that, you know, as much as we are removed from the world around us, the the idea of of sort of the, the monstrous being on the outside of civilization, right, the, that, that idea has never gone away. So places like Freetown, where it's like, yeah, we don't go there. You know, it's like uh, the woods at the end of our street. There was sort of this unwritten rule that you don't go in there at night. And it was like that was that was just what we did, you know. But it's it's one of those things that's inherent. 
because we understand as humans, we understand hierarchies and we understand organization. And this whole idea of chaos versus order has always been a thing. And so these places that are disordered or outside of our civilization are where all the monstrous things exist, hence why archetypes. We, we experience the archetypes in these places. If that if that makes sense, absolutely. I think that deer are to Bigfoot like seals are to sharks. When you see seals, <laughs> sharks are to follow. Um, but but whatever these things are, they're huge. Mm. There's male and female and youths. Uh, their senses, their hearing, their sight, their smell, their speed, mm. their agility is incredible to the point of being non-human as we understand it. Mm. And as I mentioned in our, our, our prelude, uh, we need to understand that we may not be able to understand and. They're being seen more because of cell phone cameras, okay? Right, yeah. And the BFRO has done remarkable work uh, over the past 25 years oh, to yeah. actually quadrant out where the hotspots are. Mm. So now they can go there. These are where, as I mentioned, where, where families have probably of these things have been for generations. They can actually go in there and experience the phenomena. Glowing eyes, balls of light, the smell, wood knock, uh, perhaps tracks, or even a sighting. Mm. Okay. Well, we're going to take our mid-show break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley, along with TuneIn.com and the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. We'll be right back with John Horgan, so stick with us. Hi, this is Nancy Phillips, the button chairperson for the Autumn Fest Committee. We thank everyone for their many years of supporting Autumn Fest and to let you know that this year's buttons are now available at local small businesses. The cost is still $1 per button, and you could win a cash prize of $500, $250, or $100. If you own a local business and would like a bucket of Autumn Fest buttons, please email me at buttons at autumnfest.org. And I look forward to seeing you at this year's Autumn Fest. Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on WON AM and FM. Our guest today is John Horrigan. We're talking about the amazing Bridgewater Triangle right in our AM FM listening area. And we have a question, two questions actually, from Peter in Bogota, Colombia who has a, uh, become a uh, co-host now and then with us. Mm. So, Ben, if you would be so kind. We kind of addressed the first one a little, but maybe John could extrapolate. Indeed. When in doubt, extrapolate. Uh, so our good our good buddy Peter writes to us, uh, Does high strangeness, quote-unquote, exist in the Bridgewater Triangle Bigfoot cases? If so, what are examples? Which we kind of we went into, but if there's any more you can point out, feel free. Well, there's, there's other ones, and people have claimed to have seen them, and again, there's a tremendous... Op- pathology afflicting the United States. Um, I'm a contrarian. What they say, I contradict. Mm. So whether they've seen them, I've heard of these paranormal groups with snappy acronyms claiming to have seen all seven phenomena at, at night, you know, balls of light, thunderbirds, phantom pumas, black dogs, mm. bigfoots, and two words for that. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's usually, uh, as, as you mentioned, Paul, when you're not looking specifically for it, or when you're looking down, that's when it shows up. There's something a lot to that. And, of course, we haven't even talked about the Black Dogs of Abington, which took place, I believe, in, in the early part of 1971, where allegedly a, um, a, a black dog was seen ripping the throats out of uh, necks of ponies, 
Mm. I believe it was a firefighter by the name of Philip Kane. There's some people that have disputed that story, thinking it was embellishment, exaggeration, hyperbole. Who knows? And then uh, it concluded with people seeing this large black dog with red eyes. Again, out of Victorian, um, the Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah, right. Victorian literature. And concluding with a police officer firing at point-blank range at this thing along the railroad tracks. And the dog just looking over its shoulder and then ambling off into mythology. Mm. And there's also been giant birds seen there. Where I lived in, in, in uh, Eastern Mass, I lived an eighth of a mile. I used to go up to this place called Bird Hill. Oh, yeah. And apparently a police officer by the name of Thomas Downey was going through that area. A huge bird lands in front of him. He describes it as a pterodactyl or pterodactyl with mm. a 10 to 12 foot uh, wingspan. And then the thing flies off. Of course, he tells his fellow officers, friends, and they make fun of him. Um, Before. Before he passed, I, I had a chance to have a conversation. He wished it never happened. Um, nowadays, because birds, crows are getting the size of spitfires, right? Yeah, again, pretty um, big. They're scavengers. There's mm. free food. Seagulls are huge there. So there's a litany of thunderbird sightings, in, as Lauren Coleman has um, uh, recounted, throughout um, the Midwest and the southwest of the United States. Yeah. So those are two of the other creatures. Interesting. So, so now the, the the next question is uh, <clears throat> how many anomalous uh, materials alleged alleged to be uh, you know paranormal Bigfoot or otherwise have uh, I'm sorry otherwise from the Bridgewater Triangle have been examined by a lab and what are the results? Good question. I some hair samples I know Chris Pittman um, retrieved in there and he sent it off to a lab and I, I don't I don't want to say it's inconclusive. I don't have the answer for that. Mm. Um, there's been evidence is scant, I will tell you that. When people emerge... In 2009, a, a guy came forward with a Bigfoot print. It was a perfect cast. All of the Bigfoot hunters that I know have lived their lives to get that perfect cast and have never found it. This guy goes down there off of Elm Street and Bridgewater and pulls out a perfect cast. <laughs> no, sorry. And yeah, I, right. I called him out for what it was, and uh, he hoaxed it. So it's it's been very, very... Uh, not much... Hard evidence has come out of there, mm. except for sightings like Lake Nipponicket, Phantom Campfires, um, a serpentine anomaly some boaters have seen there. And I've, mm. I've kayaked in Lake, Lake Nip, and I got lost in terms of my, it was, I thought I was going east and I was going west. So mm. there, there's, uh, you guys have spoken of vortexes before, so perhaps there are some magnetic anomalies within that area. And again, clear cut, there's high tension wires there, so oh, yeah, who knows? A lot of them. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, anything that sort of produces electromagnetic phenomena, right? So it's... But but even then, back in the day, right? You know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, you know, you you didn't have high tension wires, right? Just audio cassettes, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you had reel to reel tape recorders back in you know 1780. That's <laughs> what I started. Yeah. So we we worked so, it, we worked in the 70s, the 1770s. But right. any, but anyway, <clears throat> so so it's it's interesting that you brought up this idea of of uh, mythology, right? And, and we in in the modern world don't really don't really have that. Well, we do sort of, which would be that I, I would argue that the, the paranormal and, and paranormal research is the mythology of the materialist, right? That would be my my argument. Oral tradition, right? Yeah, because it's like you know people tell ghost stories, and it's like oh you know I saw the lady in white in X Y and Z hotel, and it's always someone who committed suicide every time, and it's and it's, I take it and I embellish it, and she had glowing green eyes and a white flow and long blonde hair, <laughs> even though you never said that, and then then he hears it and he adds you know she had yeah. bracelet on, and right? She could yeah. Fly and but the interesting thing is, I heard this definition a little while ago, uh, maybe you know, on on a podcast I was listening to, 
of of what mythology sort of used to be, which I I really liked because I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense than oh, well, it's just stories. That it's a story we participate in, right? So the idea of having having you know folklore that we participate in, right? You know, we go to Freetown State Forest, we experience the thing there, and that's part of the story of the place that we are experiencing. There's sort of this idea now that we're all sort of the main characters in our own story, and we're not. <laughs> We're all we're all sort of you know side characters participating in a greater thing you know that's why you hear this thing oh well you know they're not towing the line or the narrative or whatever and so we're we're what is the narrative what are what is the story that we're participating in so in in this idea of Sasquatch the mythology of Sasquatch is is so fascinating because it's this you you hear it in other other things and I, I think of um, Enkidu from the uh, the um, Mesopotamian mythology right. Who uh, you know he was sort of this this answer to um, I think it was Gilgamesh who was sort of this you know demigod right who you know he just sort of he he, he was he was kind of a jerk right so <laughs> you know he impi- he sort of imposes his will on things and it's I always like to point this out to people because heroes back in the day you know they're not like your Disney heroes they were like they were just they were awful terrible people. But the idea was that they were heroes because they imposed their will on reality, right? You know, Caesar was hailed as a god not because, you know, he was a good guy, right? He, he, you know, he was hailed as a god because he conquered the Gauls. And then he just imposed his will on everybody else. And so everyone was like, wow, this guy must be a god because look at that. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's the same thing with Gilgamesh, right? So his the sort of the answer to that was the, the Mesopotamian gods making this guy called Enkidu who was the, the the sort of the the opposite side of the spectrum, where he wasn't this civilized thing, he was this big hairy creature, right? You know, and the goal was to make him civilized in order to fight back against Gilgamesh. So this this figure of this big hairy guy existing in the wilderness has been around forever, many different mythologies. But the fascinating thing about Sasquatch, which you don't see in a lot of other mythologies, is this sort of monstrous wild creature, but also having a side of wisdom a side of some sort of mystery, a side of some sort of, you know, intelligence. Usually it's just straight up, you know, it's a, it's a monster. But but there's sort of this odd aspect to Sasquatch where it's there's this this idea of an intelligence behind it. There's an idea of some sort of, you know, there's there's something else there besides oh well there's this big hairy guy running around in the woods. You know, what what is what is behind the elusiveness? Why do we want to know about it? Great. Great riff there. Um, well, they're observant and curious, right? These, these wild men, and they've been in American literature um, since the 19th century. I love stories of the abominable snowman and some of the great mountaineers, what they've seen. That's, I mean, I go back to In Search of, that's how old I am. Uh, oh, to me seeing too. Those, right? yeah, and just crazy. seeing uh, these mountaineers, and then Hillary trying to dance his way out of it that he didn't see one when we know he did. <laughs> Eric Shipton photographs, and on and on and on. To me, that's fascinating. The Yeren, uh, the Yowie in Australia, uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch. We were talking about before the show, they're seen in Rhode Island, I yeah. think in the oh, north, yeah. north, northwest area, in the northeast area. It was an albino area. one that yep. time. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. In the T area, as I call South Central Mass, yeah. northeastern Connecticut. They're absolutely seen in Rhode Island. They mm. have been seen in Rhode Island. Just the witnesses have not come forward because they're afraid of scorn and ridicule. And that's one of the reasons why I suppressed my research for so long, because of scorn and ridicule. Now I really don't care. Um, (laughs) Well, you were talking about people um, embellishing or weaving themselves into the narrative. I remember leaving Roswell in 1997 after the 50th anniversary 
and we just passed the 75th anniversary mm-hmm. without a hiccup. And driving away is when they disclose the uh, UFOs, it's not even going to make the news because nobody will care. Lo and behold, December 2017, um, they disclose. They basically came out. And we basically know the three of us know more about UFOs, the four of us, than the U.S. government. Why don't we just, we do. Because we were historians, we, and especially you, Paul, with all of your years of research. Um, but people put themselves into the story. When I, Frank Kaufman, Jim Ragsdale, and ruined the Roswell story, took the, all the credibility out of it. And that's what's happening now with the research of paranormal phenomena. People are saying they saw something when they didn't, especially these, these groups who are on a mission to see something. And as you know, Paul, it doesn't happen that way. Um, so the red-headed hitchhiker, Route 44, Bridgewater Triangle, you mm. guys have heard that. Brief recap for the listeners. Allegedly, uh, people see this man in a plaid shirt, red beard, um, hitchhiking. Um, they drive by. He appears in their back seat. Um, the radio goes static. They hear a laughing in the woods. So I went down there in, I think, 2006 to see if I could. The legend says, flash your headlights three times and honk your horn three times, and it'll show up just behind uh, the passenger side seat on the right-hand side, at, right at the Seekonk Rehoboth line, right mm-hmm. on the round. So I did that. Boom, 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 flash. My headlights got pulled over by the cops. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did make something happen. You did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you, you summoned the local police. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, why not the adorable snowman, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we have uh, a number of questions that have arisen in our research, and other people recognize them too. For example, in the Bridgewater Triangle, which is practically within sight of Boston, biggest city in New England, uh, where does Bigfoot come from or go? Or in Pennsylvania? You know, we have a, a, the Clearwater, uh, Clearfield County, the area of our uh, triangle research there. You have... It's rural, but it's not wilderness. You have, uh, you know, 15, 20, 25 acre woodlots. You have pasturage, cornfields, but no, no, you know, no wilderness area. The theory among a lot of the people down there is that they they live in old mines or, you know, caves or something. But I mean, you're dealing with, you know, six or eight hundred pound primate here. That, that, that just doesn't wash. So the theory that we adhere to, along with Linda Godfrey and other sort of major theological figures in this field, is that they there could be multiversal creatures coming and going, shapeshifters. The native, and, and as you said, we listen to the natives; they're the ones who've been living with us a lot longer than we have in this mm-hmm. area, anyway. And uh, the shapeshifting means not just changing shape, but appearing and disappearing. There's a huge chasm between the flesh and blooders, as I call them, yeah, right? The yeah. diehard Bigfoot researchers and somebody that has the courage to say that. Again, we, we might not be able to understand. They no. may be not of this dimension. Uh, they may be uh, equated with, with lights, dare I say UFOs. I think Skinwalker Ranch, the book, I think it was chapter 8 maybe, the Bigfoot one, where this man-beast anthropoid comes out of a portal. Yeah. Weird stuff. Mm. And we have to expand our minds that maybe they can present themselves as flesh and blood, but that's why we haven't found any bones, no body. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Rick Dyer, you lied twice. <laughs> um, there's, there's no corpse, and you're not going to get one. Um, this Todd, what's his name, uh, Standing, is it? Who's gone to a remote areas, harsh areas of wilderness in Canada, and he's come back with some remarkable footage. And the Bigfoot community says, hoax, hoax, hoax. Uh-uh. Further explanation, uh, further mm. examination on my part, like the Paul Freeman footage, for instance, the Snowwalker footage I have not discarded. Patterson Gimlin, we can all agree, that, 
that's real. That's no. They tried to put four guys in an ape costume. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And I sat, sat with Bob Gim, Gimlin for four hours, and he said, I wish it was a guy in an ape costume because wh- whoever did it, he did a hell of a job. But uh, I know what I saw. I saw it looked like an ape. Yeah. So. Well, then there's the issue of the uh, of the smells, okay? Much has been made of the idea that Bigfoot smells terrible and uh, you know, the, the sulfur or whatever smell people are talking now, in my experience, I didn't have any smell of that kind. My theory is, and I'd like to see what you uh, th- think of this, John, is that, um, and, I, and I say this because I, I don't mean to make everybody laugh here, but I'm very friendly with the local skunks here in, the, in our hill in Woonsock. I think they are lovely animals. Once they know you, that they don't get alarmed. You know, um, so anyway, uh, I think Bigfoot perhaps may, uh, th- that may be a defense mechanism the smell because I've never smelled it because I, I always go in with the respect and uh, they don't feel threatened if that's you know as I think I've had two experiences once in New Mexico in 67 and once in uh, Pennsylvania in 2016 so what say you on that whole issue of the smell? Uh, that makes sense to me what you just said is that that's that it's a fear mechanism uh, danger when people smell the sulfurs and let's let's talk about their hygiene. I'm sure that they don't oh, yeah. they don't have underarm deodorant. <laughs> they don't take showers or shampoo. But in the same token, I'm sure that their bodies of water where they can wash themselves off. Yeah. But yeah, there there are a lot of cases, more cases than not, where there's no scent. And as you said, skunks are misunderstood uh, they are. creatures for sure. Yeah. But perhaps that is some sort of defensive mechanism, or to let a member of its clan or tribe know where it's been. Don't know. Hard to well, say. I mean, uh, most creatures I'm aware of are, are very clean. Pigs are very clean. You know, uh, they just get a bum rap. So anyway, but that's the idea on the on the smell thing. Now, before we burn up the hour here, tell us where people can find out more about you, John. I guess they could Google me. You could find my TV show, The Folklorist, on YouTube. Uh, that I host, and I was very lucky to be surrounded by so many talented people. We have some paranormal things. The Ape Canyon incident, which took place in 1924. Oh, yeah. We did a recreation of that. Dover Demon. Um, uh, cool. Castle Island, the woman and lady in black, that story. And there's a bunch of paranormal stories that we've done. So I suggest go to YouTube. Uh, no need to write to me. <laughs> but in any cases, I'm not going to go out and research it. Yeah. Um, but you can find me, Google me, and you'll find all my uh, weird okay. personalities. Now, the Ape Canyon thing is very interesting. That's not the Bridgewater Triangle, but uh, is that the one where a bunch of loggers were uh, shelled, if you will, by Bigfoot? Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? It's sure. In 1924, some miners, okay, there was uh, going out there in the remote areas uh, near um, the foot of St. Helens, and I guess that cabin was demolished after the eruption of 1980. Mm. Um, but I guess uh, they fired, they see this entity, right, not in its own business, again, curious, looking at them, and they fire at it. Okay, and that this annoys this entire tribe or whatever this group of of, of man beast anthropoids, and so by the time that the lights go down, I think it's the second day, they're in this metal shack. They start pelting them with stones. These bipedal creatures, boom, 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 a, a night of terror throughout the whole night. And uh, what is it, the the man who who it's not Albert Austin? I should know this. Anyways, he's he's there recounting the story. Uh, first hand, and they're under bombardment until the sun comes up, and then after that they skedaddle. They mm. leave. They leave their equipment there, and just bolt uh, and leave the area. And it's one of the few stories of aggressive action by alleged Sasquatches. Okay, and it's a classic. Yeah. Now, 
one of the things you've investigated too are are lake monsters. Could yep. you talk talk a little bit about that? Sure. Nineteen ninety seven I went over to Loch Ness and I met up with Robert Rhines and Charles Wyckoff. Charles Wyckoff lived in Needham where I was living at the time with the Loch Ness Expedition. Their theory was the summer solstice is where these creatures mate and they come out. Hmm. And I, I agreed with that. So I managed to talk myself onto one trip and go out through the lock with them, but it was fascinating looking at their equipment. They did get some returns. Hmm. Um, I drove around the lock. I nearly drove into the lock, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because you're looking over the door. <laughs> yep. Um, but I believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Um, the the uh, Loch Ness Surgeon's Photograph, you know, it's been dismissed. I, I, I talked um, uh, with uh, the, the Alistair Boyd who brought that and said it was a hoax. And I can ag- agree with that, but there are countless uh, sightings of that uh, yeah. for over 100 years. So I believe there's some sort of serpentine anomaly or the spirit of some serpentine anomaly mm. exists in that and major lakes around the world. One of the things you mentioned, of course, it was was a myth and folklore, uh, whether it be the First Nations or whoever. But we are big on that as as the, the the vessel of the memory of the human race. Something happened in folk, and you're a folklorist as well. The footprint, right? And in, in, in studying history, the appropriation of, of North America, the Pilgrims came here for one reason: they found Town Brook, fresh water. Boston was settled for one reason and one reason only. There was Reverend Blackstone. That he had a great spring. You can go in Spring Street in Boston, fresh water. Old okay. friend of ours. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a random sighting, and then from there, it's uh, you know we'll we'll pay for it later, you know. And they lied and swindled and brought our diseases. Uh, from Europe, we remember humans had lived with animals for thousands of years, and we built up immunities. So by the time they came here, pristine lands with Native Americans who did not have the antibodies, um, they died off quickly. And in fact, the Wampanoags, um, led by Massasoit, the Narragansetts were their rivals. And Massasoit said, "Hey, if I uh, unite with these these white people with these fire sticks, right?" They'll give me some strength and some leverage against the Narragansetts. And then when the Narragansetts saw all the Wampanoags dying off and what was known as the Great Dying from 1616 through 1619, they social distanced. They went into the interior and saved, saved themselves. So mm. it's uh, we wiped out, uh, and then we moved west. We haven't even talked about the scourge of the west, what the settlers did. Whoa. My God, the yeah. blood that was shed there. And I'm glad Custer bought it, okay? I'm, I'm, like, I'm not a Custer guy at all, and he, he got what he deserved. And, and now it's ironic that these Native Americans, finally they're getting their lands handed back to them after you know, 350 years. So uh, This is totally off subject, but how come the Natives didn't give the Europeans diseases? How come it didn't work both ways? Well, they didn't even have our plants here. We brought wheat, barley, oats, right? They only had corn. The only uh, domesticated animal they had was the llama. They didn't even have the wheel. Um, and I guess that the, the, the only disease they did give, oh, there you go, gonorrhea. Okay, that, oh, no kidding. That came okay. from, from America. They brought that back to you. But no, nothing airborne. Uh, well, I, I just, no, they were very healthy I people. just asked weird and, questions. No, it's a good question. It, it, I mean, I don't even know if they had influenza here. Um, Probably not. I because uh, they dressed scantily and they, they made use. They went where the climate changed. and But uh, they were really a fit race. And, again, um, they didn't have the immunities to no. ward off European diseases. Well, at that point, we'd also had, like, ton- in, in, in Europe, there were tons of plagues that came from all over the place. Oh, Africa, true. Asia, all sorts of things that just kind of mixed, yeah, mixed and, yeah, and, and meshed and all these other things. So, of course, you know, all sorts of diseases would pop up. 
that wouldn't exist, you know, in the in, in between, you know, the, in the continents across the oceans, you know. But the and, Europeans have been here. There were fishing camps in Maine, trading posts and stuff. Long before the pilgrims. Uh, correct. And it's just well, so, what you said there, Ben, we're going through that today with, with coronavirus. But, right. Paul, my theory is, and I've talked with people at uh, Patuxent, Plymouth Patuxent, they, they said Ground Zero, Patient Zero, was a French trapper in Maine, and then the Scourge, the Great Dying, went south. Mm-hmm. I Could think, very no, well be. because I don't know. The, the devastation at Plymouth, that one of John Smith's, the guy's name was Hunt, I believe, uh, one of his men also had it, so there was a second Ground Zero for the Great Dying, in my opinion, that took place at Patuxent, which is why it wiped out those villages and why the Narragansett skedaddled into the interior. Of course, mm. our question today would be, was Bigfoot affected? But but anyway, what what is the next step for you in your research? Um, well, I, I, I like to keep my ear to the ground, and I love the classic UFO cases from the, from the early parts of the year. Mm. I've walked away from Roswell. Either there's no flying saucer crashes or there's a litany. There was an incident at Roswell. They found debris, and you've interviewed Jesse Marshall, Jr., but in terms of an auxiliary crash site, I've walked away from that. I don't believe, as Kevin Randall has said, there's no – where are the alien bodies? Okay. Um, I believe the government doesn't know much about UFOs. The more people listening to this radio station knows more about UFOs than the government does. So I'm going to continue to look to the skies. As I told you earlier, I'm, I'm moving into eschatology and uh, miracles and, and divine intervention yeah. right now. That's where I am in my life, and I find that fascinating, and miracles and whatnot, because uh, I think right now we're at, we're at a pivot point for the human race. Hmm. Interesting. We, uh, I don't know if anybody's aware of this. I certainly our audience is the, any old timers. Uh, Joe Ferrier, who was a very, okay, you know. Mm, met yeah. Joe back in the day in the 90s, yep. No kidding. Yep. He had the uh, afternoon show here on WON for over 50 years. Joe's Moldy Oldies, his uh, record yep. store across town. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And he had, um, he was a UFO uh, figure of the 1960s, publisher of um, Pro Magazine. Which I have an original copy that he gave me, mm. and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. He came on this show once because we were writing back of him in the drive time on Mondays for years, and uh, he t- mentioned a lot of things that he had never mentioned publicly before about his own experiences. Fascinating thing, but uh, when you mentioned uh, that that whole scenario, just all we thought of was Joe, mm. dear dear friend. I got to talk to him once upon a time. No and, kidding. Uh, oh we, yes, we were on a show. Uh, no, I, I interviewed him and he t- okay. uh, chatted with him at a UFO convention. I, I used to hold a UFO convention called the Mass UFO Show once upon a time and the Mass Monster Mash back in the early part of the uh. century after Joe had passed. But I, I, I crossed with him, I think, in 93 at a convention in Connecticut or something like okay. that. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to send you the link to that show. I'll, I'll put it on Facebook, yeah. too, because it just, it's really was really fascinating, some mm. of the stuff. So uh, then we're coming down to our announcements at this point. Yes, sir. And uh, let's proceed. Indeed. And finally, after after many years, the Exeter UFO Festival returns in September at the historic Exeter, New Hampshire Town Hall over the Labor Day weekend. Uh, that's September 3rd and 4th. Uh, this is a great event, and the whole downtown gets involved. It's sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club uh, to benefit local children's charities. Along with ourselves, uh, we had there are a litany of speakers, including Valerie Lafaso, uh, the Ralph Blumenthal, Kat, Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, uh, Jennifer Stein, Bob Terrio, Mike Stevens, Lynn Nickerson, Mac Maloney, and many, many others. 
And so we've got something going on ourselves as well. We'll be speaking there, and the subject of our talk is time storms, uh, with many thanks to the great British researcher, Jenny Randalls, who coined the term. Uh, we plan to do our traditional live broadcast from there. Uh, that's why I have no hair. And the event is on, <laughs> on Sundays with a panel of the speakers. Uh, this is a very fun event, so you can join us if you'd like. You can visit ExeterUFOFestival.org for many details. Okay. Yeah, that'll be a great event, and it's only two weeks away. So visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 1,100 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON AM and FM, including many that have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. Also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. We also have a show app. doesn't do a lot, but it doesn't cost anything either. Uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, there's a link. Uh, you can browse uh, our books there on the website as well, along with those of our other guest co-hosts at our show website, uh, again, BehindTheParanormal.com. You can also find more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us. And you can also visit our website for all the charities that we've adopted over the years on our charity page. There's links to several good causes that we've adopted, including Hope for Hilldale, Hemet's Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts. If that's not enough H's for you, I'm, I'm sorry. USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, helping Haiti's orphans. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, the uh, Sisterhood of Ground Zero, and most recently, the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund. And I should point out that, that we are very, very careful about the charities we adopt on the show. We know the people who run them personally, and uh, the money goes uh, where you want it to, especially uh, my favorite is helping Haiti's orphans. Uh, a lot of the children in the orphanages were uh, originally, at least, were, were orphaned during the earthquake in 2010. And since then, uh, they have grown and are doing some wonderful work. Mm. So what's on the menu for next week, then? Well, next week, that's August 28th. Jeez, we're just powering through August. Um, we'll, we'll continue our cryptid theme uh, with the globetrotting British monster hunter Richard Freeman. Uh, you can send your questions and comments to behind the pa- Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. And I should point out that next week uh, I'm going to be away with Ben's mom. Uh, we're headed uh, south, and Ben will be uh, flying solo here. Ah, uh, you'll be flying, and I'll be flying. It'll be great. Yeah, we'll be doing a great job. I'll listen in if I can. And if I want to bother you, maybe I'll call in. I if you, hey, feel feel free to bo- bother away, but I, I, I can imagine you'll have your, your hands full. But, hey, it'll, it'll be fun. You know? Yeah, that's true. We'll Richard be, uh, and I, will we'll, we'll talk shop, we'll talk cryptids, and we'll we'll do all the fun stuff. And maybe I, I will ask some fun questions. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> maybe they'll be terrible questions. <laughs> no, they won't. coming from you, they'll be wonderful questions. Anyway, so what do we have uh, coming up on the uh, in the refrigerator for next week, Ben? Oh, I just told you. Of course. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's really old. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a, it's still, you know, it's I'm looking it's at one the, of the script here. Well, you know, we're 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 a little we're a little fried. It's very warm here in the the right. New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island with a nice 87 degrees out there and we're a little we're a little warm. So it's understandable. So pay no attention to me. Yes. We leave you today with a thought-provoking thought from none other than Thomas Edison. Who might normally like he stole everything from Tesla? Yeah, he, well, <laughs> anyway, he did. But hey, you know he had the forethought to steal from him. So, <laughs> so anyway, quote: Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Unquote. 
I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.